please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5. As I said earlier, with the former Seventh-day Adventist conference right around the corner, there's no better timing for us to be in this particular section of Scripture. Just two verses this morning, verses 16 and 17. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Last week, we saw that Jesus grants merciful healing to a paralyzed sinner. The man remains committed to his sinful legalism. We looked at this hoping that we ourselves would not rest in our own self-righteous ability, really inability, but in his sovereign mercy. Because that's what you see on display in John 5. You see the sovereign mercy of a kind servant who has the ability to heal. He offers healing and he grants healing despite the fact that the man who had received the healing placed his hope in something other than the healer. So this shows his sovereign mercy, his willingness to heal, even when the man didn't respond with a simple yes, when Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? He exhibited his hope in his own ability. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who acknowledge that they cannot help themselves. That's a display of repentance. It's a display of spiritual inability. It's a necessary factor in redemption. The person who comes to Christ or the person who sits by while Christ walks by, even approaches and asks simply for something to be done so that he himself could do something is really misunderstanding his condition and he's misunderstanding the ability of the healer. In the last couple of weeks, I've given you seven points. I want to quickly go through those just to kind of prep your mind for where we'll be today. We talked first in verses 1 through 6 about the mercy of Jesus. You see, Jesus inclined toward really finding this invalid amongst a number of invalids. He searches him out. That's the way the mercy of God always goes. So we saw the mercy of Jesus. Next, in verse 7, we saw the mistrust of this sinner. You might call it misplaced trust. His hope was in his ability, really his inability, to move himself to the place that he could get into the water so that the stirring of the water might produce healing. And we talked about the fact that that healing was real, but it was extremely partial. It was paltry at best. Whatever healing that was experienced was more of a placebo effect more than likely. Certainly not a full healing, but really a little bit of relief from the man's difficulties, those who would have experienced any benefit from it. Third, of course, then we looked at the miracle of Jesus, that Jesus actually healed him, and there was no expression of that. Jesus didn't say, be healed. He said, get up, take up your pallet, and walk. So while healing him, he commanded him to respond to the healing work. This is a real experience. It's not a parable. This actually happened. This is a real man, Jesus performing a miracle in this man's body, but it illustrates the way salvation works. You see the commands in the Bible for us to be involved in our sanctification. This is subsequent to Jesus having performed a merciful saving work. He then says, obey. And all those commands to obey are reflective of the ability and the inclination to obey. The fourth point we looked at, and these were where we started last week, and you don't need to write these down. If you, if you want them, let me know. I'll, I'll get them to you. But don't, don't trouble yourself writing these down. They're a little too long. Number four, the unreasonable burden of the Jewish leader's legalism. This is, we call this an unreasonable burden. We distinguish this from the unbearable nature of this burden. It is unbearable, but it's unreasonable in this moment that somehow there would be anything other than exultation, than ecstasy, 
when seeing that this man that they knew had been an invalid for 38 years was now walking? How could they do anything other than shout for joy? But they did. They did. They called him to explain why it was that he wasn't adhering to the legalistic laws. There's no law that you couldn't carry your pallet on the Sabbath. That was a a Judaistic addition. They wanted to know why. Why are you doing this? And so they placed this really an unbearable burden on him as a result of the unreasonable burden of answering questions when what they should have been doing is rejoicing with him. But they actually nurtured in him, point number five, an imprisoning guilt. There was an imprisoning guilt of this healed sinner's legalism. While God had blessed him, he still clung to his ability, which was really an inability. He was clinging to the legalistic additions to the law placed on him by the Jews, by the Pharisees. Six, in verse 14, we saw the liberating admonition of the sovereign Savior's mercy. What did he say to him? Stop sinning. There's no theological treatise here. It's just the very clear orthodox command, the orthopraxy, to obey. Very clear, very simple. Why? Because the infirmity that you were experiencing was the result of your sin. And if you continue to sin, it will be worse. You see this expressed theologically in 1 Corinthians 11. We go over that every time we go over the Lord's table. There's this stern, really stark warning. You not bring judgment on yourself by taking the Lord's table in contempt. You know, you have hidden sin, and yet you take the Lord's table. What is the result? Some sort of illness. It happens, and some people die. It's a stern warning, and this is what Jesus is warning him of. It's a liberating admonition, though, from the sovereign Savior's mercy. It's a liberating warning, and yet the man didn't heed the warning, as far as we know. Certainly in the text, there's no indication that he did. And then seven, the hard-hearted blame-shifting of an unrepentant sinner. So he goes to the Jews. I got the guy's name. Remember, they had asked him, who was this? He didn't know. He didn't know who he was. He should have known, but he didn't know who he was. But then he finds out. Why? Because Jesus finds him in the temple. They have this conversation, and then he runs, and he tells the Jews his name is Jesus. So you could say he rats him out clinging to his homage, his allegiance to the legalists, the Pharisees. He wanted their honor. He wanted their favor. He wanted to please them. He was not concerned about the pleasure of the sovereign Savior. So that's the tragic reality of this circumstance. It's what you need to know at this point as we go into these couple of verses, which are highly concentrated with much truth, and you need some background in order for us to look at them in a way that's actually going to be helpful. We see here why Jesus is about to be persecuted. You walk into chapter 5, you're walking into this door that's going to swing wide open into the persecution of Jesus that ultimately leads to his death. Your so that statement there reads, This morning, we will see that Jesus does what he wants on the Sabbath so that we will understand and enjoy God's true design for the Sabbath. A lot of misunderstanding about the Sabbath. One more reason to encourage you to attend the former Adventist conference coming up next month. You're going to learn a lot. Be glad you did. You'll get some books. You can really start thinking and praying about your Adventist friends having a better ability to communicate the truth of the gospel as it stands in contradistinction, really great contrast to the false gospel of Adventism. It's not Christianity. You say, but I know, I know some people who really, they really seem to be in Christ who are in Adventism. Why? There's a lot of talk about the gospel. There's a lot of talk around the gospel. And when the gospel is delivered, even inadvertently, people will get saved if the Holy Spirit chooses to save them. But the concept in Adventism is that you establish and maintain your place with God with legalistic adherence to eating the right food and not eating the wrong food and worshiping on a particular day and not worshiping on the wrong day. 
And once we're done this morning, you'll have no trouble understanding and communicating to others why that's futile. It's spiritually and eternally futile. Point number one, I want you to see Jesus' merciful work drawing his persecution. The first thing we see in our text is Jesus' merciful work which draws his persecution. Again, verse 16, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So this was the beginning of the Jews' persecution of Jesus. It was too much for them to see that he was not only working on the Sabbath or breaking the Sabbath, but he had influenced another man to do it as well. But was Jesus working on the Sabbath? Was he breaking the Sabbath? See, God gave ten commandments to Israel. You're, you're aware of that. And he certainly expected them to keep them. The fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 8, says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He made it separate. It's a day of separation. It's intended to be a day of rest, really, in reflection of God's day of rest. Now, there are those who are committed to the idea that the seventh day of the week is to be strictly kept in the spirit of Exodus 20 and beyond. The seventh day, which is what day? Saturday, Shabbat. It's the Sabbath. And that's not only a tradition, that is the reality. It was... Saturday. The Jews, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, held on to an additional 39 categories of laws on top of the Ten Commandments, 613 nitpicky rules so as to avoid violating the law of God, intending to adhere to the letter of the law, meanwhile violating the spirit of the law. You know the phrase, he doesn't see the forest for the trees. That's that person that's so tightly wound, so tightly focused on the minutia, the detail of things that he forgets why he was even doing it. Detail is important. He who is faithful in little will be granted much, yes? So faithfulness is in the details, but when details become the focus and not the greater issue, that's legalism. And it in particular, when that's placed on others. And that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were all about not lifting a finger to adhere to the burdens, the unbearable burdens that they were placing on others, but requiring it of them. The modern term, it was even a term then, is hypocrite. Hypocrite. I uh, listened to my wife's devotion from uh, Tyler's shower yesterday. It was recorded, and I had the privilege to sit and listen to it yesterday, and uh, what a joy to hear my wife talk about uh, what it is to be a parent and a wife and uh, what it is to honor the Lord and encouraging Tyler to do the same, and we know that she is doing that. It's a joy to see Stephen and Tyler love the Lord and grow into faithfulness in the Lord. But one of the things that I so enjoy about my wife is her willingness and ability to get the big picture. And you might say not necessarily sweat the small stuff unless the small stuff is really, truly critical. But to keep one's mind focused on the pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was just a joy to hear her call you ladies to being a repentant person. To being a person who quickly seeks forgiveness from your children. Because your children know that you're a sinner. They don't know whether or not you know that they know that, but they certainly know that you are. And the person who walks through life with all these pharisaical laws and rules for their children, while they themselves are not lifting a finger to adhere to them, one day their kids either look at them and say, you know what, thank you for the day when you recognize that about yourself and you confessed it, or they walk away. And so often in the pharisaical circles of Judaism, so many people walk away because they know they can't bear the burden. And they realize one day, wow, <laughs> this happens a lot in Roman Catholicism. Wow, those guys that I thought were bearing the burden were pretending. It was a hypocritical act. Well, the Jews 
in the day of Jesus were experts at creating all these extra rules, pretending themselves to fulfill these rules while, in fact, they weren't, and yet they were rather hard-nosed about requiring it others. That's why you have the Pharisees looking at the guy in John 5 and saying, hey, what's going on here? It's the Sabbath. You can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. That was not a reflection of the Old Testament law. It was a reflection of their legalistic additions to the law. You really see this illustrated in a willingness. You've seen this before. You've ever been on social media or you're reading something somewhere and you see capital G dash D. Anybody ever seen that before? So what they're doing there is they're intending to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain by not writing it out. It's ridiculous. It's not what it is to take the Lord's name in vain. To take the Lord's name in vain is to take the Lord's name and to do it vainly, meaninglessly, to say, I'm a Christian, and to clearly live as if you're not. That's what it is to take the Lord's name in vain. And so they, attempting to adhere to the letter of the law, completely violated the spirit of the law. And so they... They would never write out yod hey wow hey Yahweh. They would never do that because that would clearly run the risk of unintentionally taking the Lord's name in vain. They would certainly never say it out loud. So by avoiding saying the name of the Lord, they felt as though they were not running the risk of taking the Lord's name in vain when their every breath was taking the Lord's name in vain because they claimed to be children of the Lord while they proved that they weren't. Today, Seventh-day Adventists who are a cult want you to believe that you must worship on Saturday and do nothing. Now, you may have had an Adventist stop at your door. It's not as common as the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, but they'll do it from time to time. And they want to tell you that they don't adhere to the teachings of Ellen G. White. Well, that may be a personal truth, but officially Adventism rests on the teachings of the false believer, the heretic, Ellen G. White. And this is what Ellen G. White had to say about Sabbath observance. Parents, above everything, okay? Clearly, She's about to explain to parents what's more important than everything else. Parents, above everything, take care of your children upon the Sabbath. Do not suffer them to violate God's holy day by playing in the house or out of doors. That would not work well in my home. She goes on. You may just as well break the Sabbath yourselves as to let your children do it. And when you suffer your children to wander about and suffer them to play upon the Sabbath, God looks upon you as Sabbath breakers. Your children that are under your control should be made to mind you. Your words should be their law. Will not parents wake up to their duty before it shall be too late and take hold of the work in earnest, redeem the time, and make unsparing efforts to save their children? False gospel. False gospel teaching children that in order to attain and maintain their place in heaven by not playing on the Sabbath. It's false gospel. And yet, Christians will fall prey to this kind of stuff. Sabbath, by the way, was never in the Old Testament a day of worship. Do you know that? It wasn't a day of worship. It was a day of rest. That was the whole intent. You set the day aside for rest. You don't let anybody work, including yourself. Now, in Genesis 2, 1 to 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's not a day of worship. It's a day of rest. But why did God rest? Was God tired? God cannot get tired. God cannot be wearied. 
Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He does not sleep, nor does he slumber. God was here declaring a clean break at the end of his work of creation so as to establish an example for man to rest on a particular day for a future purpose. We'll get to that later. He was declaring a clean break at the end of his creative work, which, by the way, he has never picked back up. Creation ceased on the sixth day, and everything that was created, everything that is created, was created then. There's nothing that's been created since. He created it all then. Now, the Sabbath in the Old Testament was for man's rest, as exemplified in God's rest. You may remember that Jesus said, the Sabbath is for man, right? The man is not for the Sabbath. But what man? Who is the Sabbath for? Was it for you and me? What people was it for? To whom does this apply? That might be a troubling question with regard to your bibliology, your understanding of the veracity of Scripture, and we'll address that momentarily. This explains who it was for. Moses explains it in Exodus 31. You might want to turn there. Exodus 31, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. This was a sign, and it was for Israel. It was for Israel forever. What does it mean that it was a sign? It was a foreshadowing of a Sabbath that was to come. This is a picture of the ultimate Sabbath. What man was doing was not only obeying God and reflecting God's willingness to set aside a day of rest for himself at the end of his creation, but God did that so that man would rest, so that that day would be set aside as holy. It was a day of the week. It was the seventh day, Shabbat. It was Saturday, and it was a day of rest. In Mark 2, you might want to either jot that down or turn there or both, Mark 2, verse 23, it speaks of Jesus that one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What? The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath? No, the Sabbath is that day during which we get to best display our righteousness. And Jesus is declaring himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. This is a sign. It was a sign given to Israel. By the way, it was never unlawful for someone to take grain as they're walking through a field, they rub it in their hands and maybe even make something of it. That wasn't a violation of the law. But far more important for David and his men to eat than adhere to a temporary law given that would require that only the priests would eat of that bread. These were temporary laws. But again, this is a sign for Israel. 
Of the Ten Commandments, by the way, all are repeated in the New Testament except for one. Can you guess which one? The Fourth Commandment. You, of course, should have no other gods before God. should make no idol for yourself. You shouldn't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, right? These are all things that you see repeated in the New Testament. You should honor your father and your mother. You shouldn't murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shouldn't covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife. There's no repeat of the fourth commandment in the New Testament. But guess what? There is a repealing of it. There is a revocation of the fourth commandment. There's no command in the New Testament to keep the Sabbath, not from anyone. There's not even inference that it would be kept. What then was the fourth commandment for? In Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Is that helpful, just that phrase alone? The law, the Old Testament law, was a shadow of the good things to come. Things that were true realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near, right? The sacrificial system was a picture. It was a foreshadowing. It never accomplished anything in and of itself in terms of establishing atonement. It was a picture. And those who obeyed experienced the atonement in the Old Testament. You ever wonder how that works for the Old Testament believer? The Old Testament believer was saved by the gospel to come but it was revealed in his willingness to submit to the Old Testament law. Verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In case they were wondering, in case you were wondering. The blood of animals never took away anybody's sin. Consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. What's he talking about? Who knows what term fits in here? What, what is he talking about? The first what? The first covenant. He did away with the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Whatever was established that man must submit to is done away with. And he brought the new covenant, the new covenant between God and Christ that his substitutionary death for sinners would certainly produce atonement. That's the new covenant. We refer to that every time we take the Lord's table. Jesus says, this is the blood of my covenant, my new covenant. Verse 10, and by what will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? There's one sacrifice. There's one ultimate sacrifice. That's why he says once for all. There's no new sacrifice. And so in your awareness of Roman Catholic doctrine that requires Jesus to continue to die, right? That's what happens in the mind of the person who confesses his or her sin. That their sin is so great at times and so serious that Christ must re-die for it. No, the writer of Hebrews says he died once for all. While there is no command to adhere to the Sabbath in the New Testament, there is this in Colossians 2, and you'll want to turn there. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. 
Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now that requires qualification, right? Lest the listener or the reader think that suddenly Paul is reverting back to the Old Testament sign. What was the sign? The sign was circumcision. Every child on the eighth day would be circumcised. That was the sign of the covenant. Jesus fulfilled the law, did away with the old covenant, and replaced it with the new covenant. And so the old covenant is no longer necessary. But Paul speaks of a different circumcision. So you have again this picture in one thing of another thing. There is a picture in physical circumcision that points to the cleansing of the heart circumcision. And so Paul addresses that. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful work of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And I want you to listen closely to this next phrase. Listen to this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What's the picture? It is that in the moment that Christ suffered for our sins while the nails were being driven, atonement was applied. The forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of all our trespasses was accomplished. Listen, by canceling the record of debt. Isn't that amazing? It's gone. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Christ accomplished it. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Jesus declared all things clean. All things, yes, you can eat grasshoppers. I wouldn't eat them live. I wouldn't eat them. Jesus declared all things clean. So, that Levitical diet that you picked up on January 1st that you thought was going to cleanse your body, maybe it will help in some way, but there's absolutely no spiritual help in that at all. You're not adhering to God's original plan by adhering to Levitical dietary laws by choosing not to eat ham. Eat all the ham you want. It's good for you. So let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You see that? These are what? What are they? Louder? They're a shadow. They're a shadow. They're not the real thing. These dietary laws. The Sabbath. The festivals. All the rituals. Every ounce of it. It's a shadow. Points to something in the future. But the substance belongs to Christ. Now we could stop here, but we're not going to, just so you know. Don't leave. We could stop here. The substance belongs to Christ. And so, I can't pass up the opportunity to plead with you to think about your life. Is it about that which points to Christ, or is it truly about Christ, and therefore you do those things? There's a huge difference. 
Romans 14, verse 5, here's the other side of the coin. Some people will use this to implement the same theological premise that we just read about in Colossians, that you not allow someone to judge you with regard to food or a a day of worship or a Sabbath. But the point in Romans 14 is different. Romans 14, 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. See, that's that you would not judge the Seventh-day Adventist with regard to a day, not with regard to his legalism and his cultic beliefs. It's that you would not judge that church who has a Saturday night service or a Tuesday night service. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, if... Your local church worships on a particular day, that's your day, right? Because you're not to forsake the fellowship of the believers. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You want to go on a Levitical diet? Do it. Don't let anybody judge you because you're doing it, but just don't. Speak and act as if that makes you spiritually elite. That's what the Adventists do. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself, right? You're not yours. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. You see, it's not about a day. The Sabbath, in terms of its ultimate purpose, is not about a day. Galatians 4.9, strong warning from Paul. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. See that? The person who's all tied up in the what to do. This has so many manifestations. But of course, what Paul is dealing with here is the clear Judaistic legalism. He's refuting the Judaizers, right? That's what Paul does in Galatians. But he's also talking to believers who've returned to the elementary things of the world. He warns them at the beginning of the book in Galatians 1. He warns them that those who preach a false gospel, a gospel other than ours, is what? He's accursed. He doesn't, like he does in other letters, speak as if they are unbelievers. Why does he do that? Well, one of the reasons is probably because most of them were, as far as he could tell, truly believers. But the other issue is that a believer can fall into this legalism. There are legalistic believers. There are legalistic unbelievers. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. But the ultimate issue, just to kind of really bring this down to the fundamental reality of it, is when you're asked for an explanation of your hope or even your conduct, you go back to the cross. Regardless of the accusation, you plead the blood of Christ. You don't make a case for why your life is better than somebody else's, comparatively higher, more elite, That distinguishes the unbelieving legalist from the believing legalist. Ultimately, you can get the immature legalistic believer back to the gospel because that's where his hope is. But the one who only wants to defend his conduct, obviously his conduct is his hope. Now, How is this possible? In other words, how is it possible that if we believe, and we certainly do, in the inerrancy of Scripture, the the troubled heart that 
often begins to brew when things like this are addressed. You know, last week we, we talked about a difficult issue. You know, some might say there's like a verse and a half missing in my Bible. It's the wrong way to say it. There's not a verse and a half missing in your New American Standard. There's a verse and a half added to the King James. Actually added to the manuscripts from which the King James was translated. The Byzantine manuscripts are not as reliable as the Alexandrian manuscripts. It's a widely known reality. Those who refute that, those who deny that, are those who are simply all caught up in King James onlyism. Now, praise God for those who love the King James. I have no problem with a person who loves the King James Bible. You know, maybe there's a sentimental issue because that's what their grandfather, you know, their mother read or, or whatever. That's fine. It's still the Bible. But the flaws in the King James monstrously outweigh the idiosyncrasies in the NAS and the ESV. So that's a troubling issue at first, but the more closely you look at it, the more you realize it's not really troubling. The Word of God is preserved forever in heaven, Psalm 119, verse 89 tells us. Now, I think most of you know this. Um, let's make sure all of you know, none of the original manuscripts exist. They couldn't have lasted this long. They disintegrated. And so there were copies made. And while copies were being made, there was an occasional error. A scribe, when he got tired, he would write the same line twice. Well, that kind of error is easy to clear up. But when a guy adds a superstition into John 5, others reading that later wouldn't have known that it was an added superstition. That's why it ended up in the manuscripts from which the King James was translated. But how then is this possible? How is it possible that God gave this clear decree? Did you notice how much more minutia there was with regard to the fourth commandment than all the others? It was important. It, it wasn't like, he, okay, I, can't, I got nine good commandments. Oh, I got to come up with one more, and oh, it probably won't last. Let's just throw something in about Saturday. It was important. It held a critical purpose. But it was a futuristic purpose, which far outweighed the temporary purpose of an adherence to a day, such that it's repealed. So there you go. Fourth commandment's not for you, not even if you're Jewish, because you're not Old Testament Jewish. You're not of the Old Covenant. You're of the New Covenant. But if God's word is inspired, inerrant, infallible, how can it be that the fourth commandment was given and taken away? Because God can establish certain decrees for certain times as he pleases. Now, why is it, do you think, that modern Judaistic Jews want to hold people to circumcision and want to hold people to other Old Testament law? Why, listen to this. Why is it that certain people will hold you to the tithe? but not the sacrificial system. Because they don't understand the purpose for the Old Testament law. There are laws that are perpetuated in the New Testament, and there are those that are not. God can do what he wants. I'm not just saying, well, we don't know, we don't understand it, God can do what he wants. God made it clear why he did what he did and why he wanted to do it the way he did. He wanted there to be a temporary picture that would point to a permanent picture. And he was completely successful at it. But there are certainly those who deliberately misunderstand. They miss the forest for the trees. They adhere to the letter of the law without applying the spirit of the law. This in no way cuts at the veracity of Scripture. It's man's faulty approach that does that. This is why, men, we took you through a lengthy study of hermeneutics. Bible study is not just about Bible reading, believing that the Holy Spirit's going to give you illumination. It certainly starts with that. But there are hermeneutic principles that don't ignore the reality that there are five major types of literature in the Bible written by 40 different authors, 66 books in multiple different cultures and multiple different time frames over 1,500 years. And yet what we call the analogy of the Scripture, the plenary value of the Scripture, the fact that 
all of Scripture is inerrant, that all of it is true, there are no contradictions, is an amazing reality. There's no other, there's no other, not just document, there's no other thing throughout the history of the world about which you could say something like that. The inerrancy of the Scripture is easily proven with any kind of study, any real study at all. See, we are recipients of the new covenant, and that was God's design. The old covenant is a thing of the past. And the fourth commandment is reflective of that. Now, Jesus did not abolish the law. Let's not, let's not walk around saying that. You know, did Jesus break the Sabbath? We'll get to that. But that's, you notice the question mark in the sermon title, right? I don't know that I've ever done that before. <laughs> trying to plant a little seed in your mind there. Did Jesus break the law? The text kind of seems to say that he did. He certainly didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it, right? Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was described by Paul the Apostle in Romans 10, 1 through 4. Remember, he says they have a zeal for God without what? without knowledge. And so they have a fabricated righteousness. They rest in their own righteousness, and therefore they forego the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, anytime they're challenged on anything, what do they turn to? What's their default? What's their foundation? What's their defense? Their conduct. Always. It's never the cross. It's never the atonement. Jesus fulfilled the law. He was the intended, prophesied fulfillment of the law. The scribes and the Pharisees, at best, they're going to miss heaven by a hair, and that's too much. Jesus fulfilled the law. The Pharisees chose to remain committed in a Judaistic way to the Old Testament law and their 613 additions. Therefore, they missed the spirit of the law in an effort to adhere to the letter. Jesus ended the sacrificial system. Why? How? He was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the subject of the sacrificial system. He was the reality to which the shadow pointed. So we, we see that Jesus' merciful work draws his persecution. You see that? Wait a minute. We left that 30 minutes ago. No, we didn't. They're willing to hold him to their own principles, their own traditions. You remember in Mark 7 where Jesus says uh, to, to the, the Jews of the day, uh, you follow me with your hearts, but your lips are far from me. And then he says to them, you nicely, it's a quite an adverb, you nicely, neatly, make the traditions of men out to be the law of God. That's what Adventists do. They're modern Judaizers. If you've come out of that system, you're clamoring for freedom. You know, sometimes the knee jerk or the pendulum swings so far in the other direction, you want nothing to do with any kind of spiritual authority. And that's just as bad. You've got to have the church, you've got to have the body of Christ. But that freedom, once a person realizes he no, he no longer has to eat particular foods and avoid other foods, and he no longer has to look down his nose at people who don't worship on Saturday because he, he's been liberated. He now understands the purpose of 
the Sabbath. It's liberating. The second thing I want you to see this morning is Jesus' work with his father drawing his murder. I want you to see that Jesus' work with his father draws his murder. So he's not only persecuted as a result of his merciful act, calling a man to get up and walk and carry his mat. He's not only persecuted for that, that's where the persecution begins. But now the plan to kill him begins at this moment where it says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. So those words initiated the wicked, sinister plot in the hearts of the Jews that they would then take him out. And they tried many times, but the scripture tells us it's not yet his hour, right? It says that a number of times. And so where you eventually see them taking his life, that should cause you to remember when Jesus said, Nobody takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down and take it up. It was God's timing, the point at which Jesus' life was taken, and yet man was completely guilty. Read Acts 2. At the hands of wicked men through which God decreed that Christ's life would be taken. It says, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. So, of course, and we'll get into this next week and the coming weeks. He is the Son of God. He's claiming to be God. They knew that he was claiming to be God. That's what really caused them to be most angry. It's one thing to violate the Sabbath. It's another thing to blasphemously claim to be God. Verse 18 says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. My father is working until now. All that means there, by the way, is that he's working now. Wait a minute. Doesn't it say he ceased to work? He ceased to do the work of creation. Jesus declares God to be his father, and at the same time, he declares that both of them are still working. Here, when Jesus declared that God is his father, this drew their attention in a venomous, murderous way. When God rested from creating light, did he cease to love? When he stopped creating, did he stop commanding? When he completed the miracle of creation, did he cease from acts of mercy? When the sun and the moon and the stars were created, did he stop doing the work of sanctification in the hearts and minds of those who love and trust him? What work is the Father doing today? What work is the Son doing today? The same work that continued at the moment that creation stopped. God always is who he has always been. He's constantly judging. He is judged, therefore he judges incessantly. God is love. He never stops loving. He never stops doing the work of love. He never stops displaying and extending his mercy he never stops pouring out his wrath on the wicked. God's work didn't cease. It was the work of creation that stopped. And by the way, God has never picked that work back up. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This speaks of that uninterruptible, perfect unity that the Father and the Son share together. And so Jesus here in this moment can say, I'm working, my Father's working. He's been working up to now. I'm working. We work. We work on the Sabbath. So did Jesus break the Sabbath? Yeah, he and his father broke it together. Or did they? There's a sense in which the answer is yes, and there's a sense in which the answer is no. Yeah, they broke the Sabbath. If you consider working on Saturday, breaking the Sabbath, on the other hand, the Sabbath didn't exist anymore. You work on Saturday... You're not breaking the Sabbath. The Sabbath doesn't exist anymore. Say, well, okay, so I get the Adventist thing, but what about our Reformed Baptist brothers? You know, the ones that look at us and say, you're not Reformed. You know, who believe that in order to be Reformed, you have to hold tightly to the 1689 London Confession, which, by the way, we love and revere. 
But the 1689 London Confession would have you believe that Sunday is the new Sabbath. When did Sunday become Saturday? It didn't. It didn't. We are not Sabbatarian, and we are wholeheartedly Reformed Baptist. What do I mean? Some of you will remember a message I did in October, I think in 2011, where I talked about small r, big B. We're not big R, Reformed, meaning we don't hold to everything that a lot of Reformed people hold to. We aren't covenantal in our theology. For one reason, because of this passage, we're dispensational. We believe that God dispenses in different eras different plans. We certainly don't believe that the church is Israel. Why in the world does he call it Israel in some places and the church in others? Because it's two different entities. There is a future for Israel that doesn't include us. But that doesn't diminish the significance of our future. Your future is perfect. You wouldn't want what the Lord has established for national Israel because it wasn't in God's design for you and you don't need to participate in that. It's an earthly future. It's not a heavenly future. It it ultimately has no bearing on your joy and the outcome of your life. So what do we do with this? You know, I often like to say, why does any of this matter? Because there's a sense in which this is just really theological, but how does it affect me? Does it really have any bearing on my life at all? Yeah, I think it does. I think it's huge. I think it might be shocking to you just how huge it really is. While the command to rest on the Sabbath is not for you, for the church, the Sabbath is for you. Uh, What do I mean by that? Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my Rest. There'll be no Sabbath for them. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's extremely easy to become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so what is, the, what is the admonition from this writer in Hebrews? Go back, verse 13. But exhort one another every day. What is that? What is that? It's to address one another's sin. It's the context, right? Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Is sin not amazingly deceitful? Have you not ever found yourself so entangled in sin and look back when it had been exposed and you actually engaged in repentance and you found yourself saying, how did I ever get there? It was one step at a time. It wasn't a plunge. It was a willingness to reject an exhortation and then another one and then another one. It was a willingness to justify what we might call small sins. It was a willingness, listen to this, it was a willingness to find somebody else in the body of Christ who'd do it with you. Some of the more sinister sins that uh, Peter talks about there in 1 Peter 2, at the beginning of 1 Peter, where he talks about drinking the word of God as pure milk, drinking it down voraciously, but he says, remove first from yourself all malice, all envy, all deceit, all slander. 
You know, the person who easily and readily engages in those things will not have an appetite for the word. What he'll have an appetite for is having the appearance of being the person who has an appetite for the word. And so the deceitfulness of of sin begins to sear over his heart and he develops a thick layer of calloused insulation around his heart and someone could easily speak truth to him and he'll dodge the question. And he gets good at it. Somebody might ask a clear, plain, simple question and he's so practiced, he easily dodges it. Why? Because of the deceitfulness of sin. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What rebellion? The the Israeli rebellion. When they wandered in the desert for 40 years. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. But nobody would have known. Pagan nations wouldn't have known. They would have looked and thought, now those are spiritual people because look at what they do. And look at what they don't do. Chapter 4, Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, right while today is still today, let us fear lest anyone of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And Again, he points, appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. And here are the words. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. It's not dependent upon your works. It's not dependent upon God's works in creation. God rested so that man would know that he must rest. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What in the world is the point here? It is that Jesus is your Sabbath. And the manner by which, the vehicle by which you engage in resting in Jesus is his word. And if you don't, you will be found out. That's the point. That's the point. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We'll finish with this one verse in Matthew 11. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Weary and heavy laden from what? It's from performance. It's from legalistic conduct. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
you've seen that Jesus' merciful work in this crippled man resulted in him being persecuted. And now we've seen that his work with his father draws the murderous efforts of the Pharisees. I want to warn you that if you will adhere to the commands of Scripture, there will be those who will attack your character. In the moment that you choose to find your rest in him, in the moment that you choose to be faithful to those around you and exhort them in their sin, there will be those who will attempt to destroy your credibility by blaming you for things you haven't done while they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger with regard to the things that they require and say they have done. But that's okay, isn't it? Because we are called to follow Jesus, and we are promised that suffering will follow us if we follow him. And it's good, and it's worth it. Because in the moment that you show yourself to be legitimately, honestly resting in Jesus is the moment that the Lord will begin to use you in the life of the person who is imprisoned in their legalism, and it may take years. But you must stay with it. Do not harden your heart while today is today. Father, we rest in your Son with whom you are working today. What a powerful reality. That while initially it would seem that he broke the Sabbath, (laughs) that you were breaking it with him, you were doing what you'd been doing all along. And yet in the moment where Jesus performed a physical healing which hadn't taken place in eras prior to that, commanded the man to get up and walk, there was no breaking of the Sabbath in doing those things. Jesus himself, when he healed someone, gave them the pathway to looking forward to the future Sabbath which would be resting in him and what he accomplished on the cross in the resurrection. So, Lord, we plead with you as a small church to work in us, use us maximally to free people from the bonds of legalistic self-righteousness that results in a willingness to persecute and murder others. May we be willing to be persecuted and murdered for the sake of those who would do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.